So I had in, in mind this month to offer some um, reflections on um, uh, the first stage of awakening, sotapanna, or stream entry. Um, presumably, one gets the sense that this is what we're all working on, or maybe putting the finishing touches on uh, in our practice. So um, it can be very, very helpful to reflect on these things. And it's one, one of the things that I love about the Buddhist teachings you know, he's, he's an amazing teacher. And uh, over and over again, you see in the various um, uh, forms that the teach, uh, teachings take that he's, he's pointing. He's pointing to different things that we need to see and realize for ourselves. And this is enormously helpful because it's, it's like, you know, you're, you're not traveling blind. <laughs> you know, you're, we're on a journey here. And it's like the difference between uh, traveling on a journey with or without a really great GPS system, you know, or a map or something. And he's got the map laid out for us. And it's just for us to um, have the wherewithal, and we do, you know, to, uh, to listen to the teachings and to look where he's pointing and to try to understand what he's saying and to see what he's seeing, what he's telling us to see. Uh, and this is very affirming in itself, just in the, the sense of being able to know where to look. But it's also very verifying on the back end, you know, where you, you, you see that he's pointing to things that, oh, I know this, I've got that, I get this, I understand this. Or verify it later on down the road after we've done the work and, and looked at what he's pointing to. So I, I find this particular teaching very, very helpful because it's, it's really pointing to very uh, critical things that we need to see. And this first stage of awakening is all about um, view, correcting our view. It's, uh, each one of the things that are uprooted at this stage uh, are about uh, one form or another of incorrect view. Basically seeing things incorrectly and trying to sort that out and come to a place where we see it correctly. And now the states that are... Um, uh, uprooted at this stage. You may have heard the teaching on the, the ten fetters. Well, the first three of the fetters are root, uprooted at this stage. And these are uh, Sakaya Ditti, which is personality view, Wichikicha, skeptical doubt, and Silabhata Paramasa, which is attachment, it's a big one, it's attachment to rites, rituals, precepts, and practices. And, you know, over the month we'll talk about all of these. Uh, very, very important. And as I said, they're all about uprooting some kind of view. So like with uh, Sakaya Ditti, personality view, it's that the view here is one where, where uh, it's about the way that we're relating to our experience incessantly, from a vantage point of self. <laughs> you know, it's, it's this tremendous, unbelievable propensity towards self-absorption. Everything in our experience is getting filtered through me, <laughs> moi, and the impact it's having on me or my lack of impact on it, that kind of thing. Uh, the uh, Wichikicha, skeptical doubt, the view here is really uh, an incorrect view either about the teachings or about our abilities to do them. You know, this is this is deadly stuff uh, in practice for many of us. Uh, you know, most people go through periods of tremendous doubt in practice. And then Silabhata Paramasa is really about um, views that we have about our practices. You know, dana, sila, bhavana, metta bhavana, and uh, these get uh, deeply entrenched. It's like uh, you might have. 
you know, hear the teaching about these particular practices and we have notions, we have ideas about what they are or what they mean or how to do them. And we get stuck in our ideas and don't do the actual practices. They, they get in the way. So I'll talk about that in a, in a few weeks. But, but here, the, um, what characterizes stream entry is um, just, just this purification of view. We garner the insights into um, how we're seeing things incorrectly and, and basically tweak the system. <laughs> you know, it's like getting your back cracked or something, going to the chiropractor, getting a good head adjustment or something. So tonight I wanted to start it off. I'm not going to take them in that order. I wanted to look first at skeptical doubt. This is a, this is a biggie. Uh, and you, you're probably most familiar with it as uh, one of the five hindrances. You know, that it's framed usually as obstacles to concentration, obstacles to meditation. All, all of the hindrances are um, framed in that way. And uh, in order to see clearly what, the, what the, the mind needs is to be calm and to be unwavering, to be very steady. But when doubt is in the mind, when it's dominant in the mind, there's a constant flickering or wavering, and we, we don't get to that. Uh, and so we end up dwelling in this wavering, flickering state instead of getting to certainty. So now the, the, the Pali word for this is very, and some of these Pali words are very, um, they, have, they, have, they have kind of like onomatopoeia, you know. There, there's a, the one for this one is wichikicha. You know? <laughs> and you can feel, I mean, I get the shivers every time I say it. You know, it's got this uh, um, itch to it, doesn't it? You know, it, and you can feel the itch, it's, and that's the energy of it. Um, in the suttas, it's um, compared to a person who's standing at a crossroads and doesn't know which way to go. It's like you're stuck. It's a very poetic image. I, I love that image of it. Or maybe somebody who has one foot nailed to the ground. You go in this direction, you can't go very far, you come back. You go in this direction, you can't go very far, you come back that direction, right? It, it's that um, uh, inability to, to get on with the program, basically. And because of the indecision or the wavering in the mind, uh, we can't act decisively. And uh, the delusion of the mind in this situation, I think, is really merits reflection, as it does in, in many of these deluded uh, states. Um, just consider what doubt does. You know, it takes a moment, and maybe, maybe it's a difficult moment in life or in practice, right? Uh, and um, it starts to spin out on it. It's like it's difficult. And it goes right into, oh, I can't do it. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not on top of it. Uh, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. All of this kind of thing. And, and it's this, uh, it, basically, it uh, starts to argue internally with that difficulty, right? And, and, and all through this sense of self, you know, this, the, uh, the problems that I have and my abilities to do this thing. And, and, you know, you could argue and argue and argue internally. Have you seen it? You're probably quite familiar with it. I know I am. You know, and, but the interesting thing about it is that what it's arguing with, it just created. It just made it up. It, it defined something as a problem. And now it starts to argue with that as a way, presumably, to try to get free of it. Uh, you know, or to try to get on top of it, but instead what's happening is it's actually getting tangled in it. <laughs> you know, doubt, it, it is the state of doubt that you're in. 
And I don't know, sometimes I look at that and I just, you know, it would be very funny if it wasn't so painful. You know? <laughs> but that's what it's doing. That's what this mind is doing uh, quite frequently. Now, there's a technical definition of skeptical doubt, and it has to do with um, faith in, in the, the Buddha, the training, um, in our abilities to do all of that. And I'll, and I'll get to that in a minute. But at first, I just wanted to look at this wavering that takes place in everyday life. I actually find this a very helpful um, inroad to seeing skeptical doubt, you know, because it's a, it's a, a constant thing. Some people have it more than, than others. Uh, but it can be very helpful to sort of begin to notice that and get a handle on it as a, as a way to um, uh, move into understanding skeptical doubt. And it shows up in many ways. You know, per, perhaps we might have difficulty just making simple decisions. You know, have you ever had that? It's like, you know, maybe like here on retreat, maybe you go into the dining hall and there's all these things, you know, you don't know what to take. And it's not like it's overly intense, but it's this state of, oh, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to, what's the best thing? And if you can feel it, um, you know, most of these states, these hindrances are all sort of heady. I, I, I feel them up here. They're like, and, and where, where, where I'm actually experiencing life is down here. You know, and where the knowing is that I'm trying to get to, the certainty is a lot more grounded and uh, maybe in the heart or, the, or, or even the belly. But it, it's up here. It's thinking, thinking, thinking about things. Uh, and, you know, one time I, I went into a real tailspin over whether or not to put a sweater on. You know, it was that kind of thing. It was like a, I was sitting at a computer one night and uh, the window was open and over the time that I was sitting there, the cold had started to come into the room. You know, and I, I, and I th- had the thought, oh, I should put a sweater on. And the immediate thought following that was, you don't need to put a sweater on. What are you talking about? You know? <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> you know, you start to feel that you realize that, that this challenging tendency, this indecision, this bit that keeps taking what is and making a problem out of it or challenging it in one way or another. And, and uh, you can feel it. The relationship with doubt and restlessness is, is pretty uh, obvious when you start to tune into it. There's an agitation in the system. And uh, I find those two are pretty much constant companions. And, and, and I'm sure you know what it's like. You know, we we've all have our own kind of brand of these, this kind of doubt. You know, doubting thoughts, are, they're, they're insubstantial. They're superficial. But they get related to as if they have substance and importance, you know. So, or you may see it as a, just a, the, the, the tendency to stop doing something in the middle of it. You know, have you ever done that? Have you ever just gotten up from a sit, for example? <laughs> or or <laughs> interrupted your walking right in the middle of it? You know, it's something spins and uh, we start to question and go to another thing. Uh, you know, and uh, I, I see it a lot too when we're just trying to do some, when it's, you have to do something new. Like maybe it's something that we don't know what we're doing. We, and we're, we're embarrassed or afraid or ashamed. And, uh, and, you know, coming from this idea that we should know what we're doing, <laughs> you know, or we should have, be on top of it. I see it a lot when I have a big task ahead of me. And um, it, it, it manifests as procrastination. You know, it's like, like no, I can't, you know, uh-uh. well, no, get started, no, get started, no, 
you know, just this constant wavering and flickering where I, one, one can't get settled down and begin the task and, and, and stay with it. So, we, you know, maybe when, when that kind of situation comes up, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have to hype myself into it, you know, where um, you, you sort of try to get into an, a, a, a very hyped state to kind of override the resistance and just see if you can plow it down somehow, you know, and, and, and um, uh, get through it. But that kind of hype often, um, it can be effective for a little while, but it doesn't last long, does it? Uh, you know, there's, there's a soon, you know, for one reason or another, we will have trouble keeping it up. And you might begin to question ourselves in one way or another, uh, start to feel bad about ourselves or, or, or uh, our abilities. And, and so there are, there are many states of mind involved in that kind of thing right there, but doubt is definitely one of them. Uh, you know, with new things, you, you need a lot of faith. You need uh, a lot of determination. You need a lot of calm. And uh, these are um, antithetical to doubt. You know, when doubt is in the mind, we can't get to those states. So it can cause us to turn away, you know, um, from uh, our original idea or to, to lose the determination before we've actually stayed with something long enough to, to get some skill in, at it. You know, most of us have seen this with exercise programs or dieting or something like that. You've got to get a momentum going, a new habit. Uh, and, and yet um, it's very difficult to do when this state of mind is, is strong. And it can be very seductive because, <clears throat> you know, we're, we're just very highly conditioned to believe that we have to know things before we actually know them. <laughs> It's a very, very dominant state in our culture, I think, particularly. You know, we're actually not very comfortable with not knowing. And in fact, in certain arenas, it can be very uh, deadly. You know, it's a, it, it's, um, you, ha- you have to have, you have to know what you're doing, or you have to pretend that you know what you're doing <laughs> in order to uh, be thought well of. And remember that um, what I said about these three fetters, the first three fetters that are uprooted at this first stage of awakening, uh, is that they're all about view. They're all about view in one way or another. And just feel the view at the heart of this kind of everyday doubt and confusion. There's There's a subtle view in there, and sometimes not so subtle, that there's a right way to be, that there's a right thing to do, and that there's a correct decision to be made. And with that view underneath it all, then, you, you know, you can, you, it's a setup. <laughs> it's a setup for spinning out uh, with indecision and confusion and concern. So we're, we're highly conditioned to, to know, to have a point of view and to, to come up with the right answer, to be right, to do it right, all of that. And that, that view needs to be seen because it's at the heart of this uh, uh, mind state of skeptical doubt. Well, when you don't know, then the mind gets very uncomfortable and it tries to get away from it. And, uh, you know, you, you enter this thinking process. That's actually, it's, it's presenting as a solution. <laughs> you know, it's presenting as the way out. But it, it only serves to get us uh, deeper into the pickle. 
You know, we're forcing certainty, forcing control, forcing answers when there are none, when there isn't any. Can you feel that? This is, this is really important. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's all very tied up with a lack of insight into the nature of things, into anicca, dukkha, and anatta. You know, we, we, you can feel the, the ignorance here. We want things that are uncertain to be certain. We want things that are not subject to our control to be subject to our control. And we want things that are difficult uh, to, to not be difficult, to be easy. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> it's, it's endless. It's relentless until we garner these important insights. There's a, there's a sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya that I love. It's, a, it's on the hindrances and the factors of awakening, but... Um, it, there's, there's several different parts to it. The one that's apropos here is, it's called nutriment. The sutta is called nutriment. And the Buddha is, is encouraging us to recognize the early signs of the hindrances and to learn to attend to them wisely. And so, well, that's, that's great, you know, but usually we're caught in it before we even know we're in it, you know. So he's kind of encouraging us to, you know, yeah, okay, even if you come in after it's all over, fair enough. Eventually you're going to come in on the middle, and eventually you might be able to be able to, to catch the early signs of it. And, and this, one, this one cracked me up when I first read it. The early signs of doubt are things that act as a foothold for uncertainty. You know? And I was like, well, duh, you know, <laughs> that's it. Of course, I, that's true. But do we see it? You know, each of us uh, will spin out in different ways about different uh, forms of uncertainty um, and different areas of our lives. Do we know the things that act as a foothold for uncertainty? And then the agitation around that uncertainty. And, and again, one of, the, one of the prominent footholds for doubt here is the perception that we need to get it right, do it right, be right, be on top of things. And so you just need to begin to recognize the mind spinning out with this kind of idea and instead open to the uncertainty. You know, open to uncertainty. You know, I can feel my whole system going, no, (laughs) I want it to be known. I want it to be certain. I want to be on top of it. (laughs) Yeah? But that's what we're taking on, you know. So much of practice is coming right up against uh, these three characteristics. So it's important to see doubt as a mind state. Remember what the, in the reading from Ajahn Chah this morning, and, and, and learn to let it be. We're confused. We don't know what to do. Yeah? <laughs> it's okay. I don't know what to do. You know, finding a way that that can be okay. And when you see it like this, you're actually working with this third, the third satipatthana, the third foundation of mindfulness. And if you recall the language of that sutta, it's very, very helpful. And I really I encourage you to contemplate the language of that um, third satipatthana. The Buddha is saying, in this case, one knows a mind affected by doubt as a mind affected by doubt. One knows a mind unaffected by doubt 
as a mind unaffected by doubt. So simple. And a huge order, <laughs> tall order, right? But because it, it, it implies an impartiality. That, that's hard one. Let's give it to ourselves. I, I often talk about this third satipatthana as very mature practice. It can take years to be able to relate to our own states of mind with that level of impartiality. But that's what it's saying. So literally, to be able to go, this is doubt. This is a mind affected by doubt. Now, and consider too, the language in there, it's, a, it's affected by doubt. It's not affected by doubt. I don't hear anything in there that says, it's affected by doubt, so beat up on yourself, hate yourself for it, get rid of it, smack yourself around. There's nothing like that in there. It's, it's a very neutral language, and it seems to be pointing to an impartiality. And so it's unaffected by doubt. You don't get exalted. You know, so look at me, I'm a stream winner. You know? Just to, to be able to hold it in a way that looks impartially at what is the state of mind. That's our only concern. What is the state of mind? Right? Just to, just to know it. And, and to and what's happening through that is also, one is getting, a, if you can do that without having something to say about it, without spinning out, indulging it, hating it, and ignoring it, then you, you're subtly, whether you realize it or not, and this is the brilliance of this Satipatthana Sutta, you're getting a direct hit of what it's like. <laughs> yeah. But that, that means that you don't uh, spin out on it. You've got to get in there and just know, oh this, oh, this is doubt. Oh, this is what doubt feels like. Can you feel that? It's very, very, very um, helpful to uh, zero in on that language. The mind is affected by it. That's the other little piece to notice, too. That, the implication in that is that it's not the permanent condition of the mind. <laughs> Something has come into the mind. That is enormously helpful. Because, you know, what keeps us with these states is it, it, they, when you're in them, they feel like you're never going to be out of them. It feels like a very permanent state, doesn't it? Very permanent condition. But it's not. The mind is uh, being affected by it. <laughs> You know, Ajahn Chah called them visitors. These, these are just all the visitors to the mind. You know, and he, and he, he would say, you know, they'd come in the front door, make sure you have the back door open so they can come on through, you know? I mean, I live in the South. It reminds me of a lot of the big Southern uh, mansions. You know, they all have, they, they all have this pass-through. It's amazing. There's these huge front doors and there's these huge back doors. It's because it's so hot down there. They've got to have the, the way for the heat to move on through, you know. It's a great image for uh, how to uh, uh, deal with or how to approach these states of mind. They're going to come in, let them pass on through. And I don't know, I don't know about you, but I, I just kind of like, I've really... Maybe to say enjoy would be a bit of a stretch, but I have to some extent certainly enjoy making peace with doubt. There's a, there's, a, there's a settling into not knowing. And who knew 
that not knowing was actually a very nice state. <laughs> you know, and, and actually it's a, it's a state of, of complete, it's, it's like it's, it's, it's ripe for anything. It's just wide open. You know, and, and uh, it's saying that um, being able to make peace with uh, a state like this, uh, it really opens the, it, it, it gives rise to interest. You know, because you, you go, I don't know. Not, I don't know, but, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And can you feel, if you, if, you, if you really settle into that state, then often the next thing that will come into the mind is, well, let's figure it out, or let's find out, or how can I know? Something like that. Can you feel? It's like ripe with possibilities. But you have to be willing to open to uncertainty, not knowing. And I, I don't know, I, I like that. I, making peace with not knowing. You find yourself just walking around the world kind of, you know, oh, it's like a wonder state, you know? It's, oh, look, oh, you know? that You're not tense and fighting and quarreling with everything that's going on. So our task is just not to get uh, caught up in doubt and certainly not to spin out with it. It cuts us off from uh, seeing the processes that are taking place. And, uh, you know, that's just in everyday life, but the stakes get particularly high when it arises in practice. You know, and um, getting caught up in that can be, uh, in a way, it can be deadly when it comes to our spiritual practice because it will undermine development. You know, we've probably all been there where you, you get to these places where you go, get me out of here. You know, I can't do this. You know, I don't know anybody, really, honestly, who hasn't at one point or another in their practice wanted to throw in the towel. You know, just, no. I don't know. Maybe everybody else is getting it, but I'm sure not getting it. You know, that kind of feeling. <laughs> and uh, we have to know that. And, and know how to work with those kinds of moments. Because, um, you know, it can cause us to turn away from meditation and turn away from uh, this practice, question whether or not we can do it, you know. We end up doubting the methods. You know, maybe, what am I doing here at the Forest Refuge? I should be in, in uh, Thailand or Japan or, you know, going and practicing with some other teachers or some other thing, you know. Uh, you, you, pract- you, you end up uh, questioning the teacher, think that he or she or they uh, don't know what they're talking about. You know, this, this can't be right. Uh, you end up questioning, and this is the, probably the most deadly, our own ability. You know, the Buddha was very clear on this. He was very clear on this, and I, I trust him on this. He said, you know, that, uh, I wouldn't tell you you could do it if you couldn't. I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have spent, you know, basically, I'm paraphrasing, I wouldn't have spent 45 years of my life telling you what to do if I thought you couldn't do it, you know. And, and trust that. Trust that. These are, because these, these can, uh, uh, they're like snares, traps for us. 
And, and our task as practitioners is to, to follow this threefold training. Sila, Samadhi, Panya. The skillful conduct, mental development, and the wisdom that uh, proceeds from that, cultivating that wisdom. And over time, we'll see for ourselves, of, of following this path, uh, it, it's like a it's a it's a well-known, well-trod path. <laughs> many have traveled it before us, and many have awakened following it. <laughs> and and so it's for us to get energized and enthused and excited about the fact that I can't explain it, but everybody in this room, our karma is such that we're drawn to it. <laughs> We, we are flat out drawn to it and uh, applying ourselves wholeheartedly to the realization. So, you know, it's interesting to know that uh, the definition, one of the definitions of stream entry, well, no, the, main, the only definition, the main definition of stream entry, you know, people asked the Buddha one time, well, what's a, what's a, what's a, how do you characterize it? And, and basically, he says that it, it involves a complete and utter confidence in the Buddha, in his teachings, and in the fact that this path is efficacious. And it involves the uh, training in impeccable sila. So these are the, the four qualities that characterize uh, a stream enter. Uh, how you can know if somebody is one, that kind of thing. So over the months and years of practice, we come to that kind of certainty, and we're enjoying those fruits. And the, the, the trick, I think, is just to recognize that that's true, and recognize our, our experience as such. Now that may seem obvious, but it certainly hasn't been obvious to me through the years. It, it took years to to kind of realize what he's pointing to here. So, for example, with sila, you know, it can begin with something as simple as as developing the habit of noticing our own goodness. Just noticing what your heart is like since you've been applying yourself to living by the precepts. (laughs) It's so simple, isn't it? But, but do, you, do we notice? I mean, if you're like me, for many years, working with the precepts is like exercises in uh, finding new ways to beat up on myself, you know. <laughs> but, but after you get over that hump of seeing the precepts as the things that we do wrong, and you begin to notice the things that are aligned with the precepts, you know, so, so you see your own generosity, you see your own harmlessness, you begin to see how you're treating people differently. You're not seeing them as objects for your own gratification. You know, you begin to clean up your speech and and uh, begin to do notice uh, that you want you like a, having a clear head, you know, uh, and what that feels like. Yeah. So one begins to uh, notice these things, and, and uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I never noticed that before taking up the Buddhist practices. You know, there's something, something in our conditioning, maybe, that doesn't let us look at our own goodness. <laughs> but we have to. We have to. That's part of um, the process of waking up. 
And, and watch how, as you do that, um, you begin to notice the, the, the happy consequences of skillful conduct and how, um, where that happiness is coming from. It, it's coming from an alignment. It's like there's no longer a rub. You know, when, and, and I think this is a fascinating thing to observe in this human organism. You know, when we behave badly, you know, why, why does that even bother us? You know, <laughs> but it does. Or when you see other people behaving badly, there's a rub, isn't there? And uh, so that, to me, is pointing to um, what um, I can't conclude anything other than the fact that there's a innate goodness here, you know. And and what makes up the news is the stuff that's uh, aberrant, <laughs> the stuff that goes against that. So, you know, you you really start to experience through the months and years of practice how happy we are when we are aligned. And it's not that it's right, you know, you're being the right way. It's not the karma police or anything like that. It's it's an ease of well-being that proceeds from uh, skillful conduct. And this heart uh, begins to notice it and take it to heart. And, and then it, it becomes even more attractive. <laughs> you, know, the, 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 you know, we talk about the practice beginning to do itself, you know. Uh, you, you, you start to want to be uh, skillful uh, because life's a lot happier that way. <laughs> it's, it's not for any righteous reason, you know. In a way, it's almost self-preserving. So we, we start to see sila, the, the validity. We start to affirm the importance of sila for ourselves. And we do the same thing with the samadhi. You know, one begins to notice the difference between a calm and an agitated mind. You know, over the years of practice, if you stop hating the agitated mind, but just begin to do that, this is a mind affected by agitation, this is a mind unaffected by agitation, and just get uh, what the direct experience of being agitated is, then the, this whole, the whole system starts to incline towards the calm, doesn't it? It's like you, you're drawn to it. Because again, there's no, it's, it's an alignment. There's an ease with that state. And um, I find uh, with that, too, that uh, a lot of people report that there's a point where uh, something changes in their relationship with the meditation. That for many years um, it can be a thing that you do. You know, something that you have to do. Uh, and yet, uh, as you be, uh, over the years, as we realize the, the fruits of that meditation, it becomes increasingly attractive. You know, if you, somebody described it one time to me where they were walking past their meditation cushion and it, got, it was like it had a magnet in it, you know. <laughs> it started to pull them to, to sit on it, you know. Uh, that was lovely, lovely image. Uh, but this heart is learning the, the significance of, uh, of samadhi. And with Panya, you know, we garner, garner the insight into the three characteristics over, over the months and years of practice. Very, very 
uh, slow and subtle process, it's true, but uh, an, imp- an important and significant one to notice. We definitely want to take this in. Because what we're witnessing is that um, life living with the realities of anicca, dukkha, and anatta is actually better than constantly being at odds with them. (laughs) I don't know about you, but it's taking me a long time to get that. (laughs) You know, you just want to fight difficulty and fight not knowing and and, uh, fight the lack of control. But um, settling into, "Eh, I don't know, oh, it's difficult. Who knew that settling into dukkha would be a happy state? (laughs) But it is. (laughs) Settle into uh, (laughs) non-self. So if you can feel all this, what, what happens over the years of practice is that we're actually verifying the teachings for ourselves. We're seeing what the Buddha is pointing to, what he's, what he's trying to get us to see. And um, the, this gradual realization of the, the fruits of practice, it, it precipitates a tremendous confidence in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, and in the Sangha. And, and I mean, these can sound so frou-frou, you know, oh, confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, but it's real. It's very real. You know, a lot of, a lot of meditators report uh, on retreats just being overwhelmed with gratitude. <laughs> oh, where would I be without the Buddha? <laughs> so happy that uh, we, we have this karma that brings us here. So, and what happens then as this matures is that, you know, one finds that the, the gaze just narrows you know, the, the, the flitting from this person and that teaching and that channel and that approach and all of that, it just starts to get more uh, direct, more simple. It's like you, you don't falter after, as the years go by. You know, because there's, a, there's this knowing, I'm on the right path. This path is bearing fruit. It works. And, and you don't have to see all that much to start to get that. You know, it, 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 it works. And, and, you know, oh, I'm getting goosebumps. You, you can just get so happy in that and, and glad that we, we are doing it. And it's not that other paths are wrong. You know, we're not saying anything about that. There's no view about it. it it's just this unwavering conviction. You know, the, the fruit of the path, one of the fruits of the path is conviction. And this is the overcoming of skeptical doubt. And Bhikkhu Bodhi puts it this way. There's a wonderful essay in the Buddhist Publication Society that I often uh, quote this particular paragraph of it because he summarizes it so well. He says this, We begin with an immediately verifiable teaching whose validity can be attested by anyone with the moral integrity to follow it through to its conclusion. Namely, that the defilements cause harm and suffering both for personal and social 
and that the, the removal brings peace and happiness. And that the practices taught by the Buddha are effective means for achieving their removal. By putting this teaching to a personal test, with only a provisional trust, I love that. You know, we start out not knowing. Come on, we don't know. I don't know if this is going to work. With only a provisional trust in the Buddha as one's collateral, one eventually arrives at a firmer, experientially grounded confidence in the liberating and purifying power of the Dhamma. This increased confidence in the teaching brings along a deepened faith in the Buddha as the teacher, in his teaching, and in those who have practiced it. Wonderful. And that actually characterizes the overcoming of skeptical doubt right there. So the trick here, if you ask me, is to relax <laughs> and, and, and give ourselves over to this process. Lose ideas about time, lose ideas about goals, just, just lose it. You know, get in as much in the present moment as we possibly can because that's where the action is. Where, where else would it be? You know, just get into the present moment. And there's a, there's a wonderful sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya, which I also love, where the, the Buddha uses this parable of a carpenter's tool. Uh, it's, it's an ads, which I, I don't, I'm not familiar with that tool, but um, it, let's say a, a tool that has a wooden handle and the carpenter who is a carpenter for many, many years. Yeah. And, and in the parable, the Buddha says that the carpenter, while he's inspecting the handle of his tool, uh, sees thereon the marks uh, of his fingers and his thumbs, the impressions from frequent use over a long period of time. You can imagine it, or an axe handle or something like that. Now the thing is, when he looks at that, he doesn't know how much of the handle was worn away that day, the previous day, or at any other time. But he will know when the wearing away has reached its limit. (laughs) Uh, Goosebumps again. We'll know when we arrive. That's all we need. You don't need to put the rest of it out of your head, you know. It'll be very clear when we arrive. And so this has been widely interpreted uh, to mean that the the practice towards awakening, uh, we, we don't know how much of the fetters are being worn away at any given time, on any given day, uh, any given year in our practice. But we do know, we'll know when we realize release. And I like that because indirectly it's just encouraging us uh, on the path without a lot of longing and without a lot of evaluating. Yeah? That's hard. I mean, let's, let's acknowledge it. You know, we're just always kind of digging up the plants to see how well they're doing, you know. It's, it's nuts, but it's what we do. <laughs> yeah. So just uh, one, one other little wonderful story from the suttas that seems apropos here. Um, you may be familiar with the Dhammachaka Sutta, the turning, the, the Four Noble Truths, the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma. 
And of course the Buddha uh, gives this wonderful teaching to the five ascetics who he practiced with for, for many years. And um, you know, the, the text says that uh, at the uh, end of the sutta, then uh, one of the five, Kondanya, Kodanya realized the dust-free, stainless vision of the Dhamma, or sometimes translated as the pure and stainless eye of Dhamma. Uh, And at at this realization in the sutta, there appears to be all manner of excitement. You know, it goes through all the different deva realms where the devas in the Tawatimsa and the devas in this world and the devas in this realm, they're all jumping up and down. They're all excited because the, the, uh, not only has the Dhamma been expounded, but Kondanya has realized it. And in the only experience, the only sutta that I've ever seen, exclamation points, <laughs> they're here in this one, where it says at the end, you can, I mean, I feel them dancing, you know, the, the, the way that uh, it's translated is, Kondanya knows, Kondanya knows, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and you can feel the excitement when you read it, you know, and, and for the longest time, um, this uh, turning of the wheel of the Dhamma is said to have been crystallized uh, at that moment. And often that's interpreted as it's because the Buddha set in motion the teaching of the Dhamma. And fair enough, that's generally what it's uh, attributed to. It's a way out of samsara, and this has been set in motion for all of us to to be able to learn from it. But I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the turning of the wheel is also about Kondanya. And, and it's about the fact that he realized stream entry on the hearing of this. He completely overcame his doubt and confusion. And, uh, and this had to be significant because now the, the realization of the Buddha, the Buddha was no longer his personal uh, experience. Now it's out in the world. <laughs> Somebody else did it. It's, in a way, the beginning of the Sangha and uh, points to the possibility for all of us. It's now out in the world. And and, uh, someone else besides the Buddha had reached a stage of awakening. And I I like that. I just like to think about that and soak in that and express my gratitude (laughs) to to Kundanya for getting it going, in a way, you know acknowledge his realization as the first one in a long line of practitioners who overcame skeptical doubt, overcame it and realized stream entry. Yeah? And to say he's the first, let's let's jump on board. (laughs) May it be so for all of us uh, in this lifetime. So I'll offer this for your reflection tonight. Yeah. I hope it's helpful. Let's just sit for a minute and we'll have our closing chant. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.